hospital. Well, hello everyone. Look at hello. <laughs> Look at all your faces. With two weeks left of school, none of you are cramming. None of you have anything better to do on a Sunday night. I'm really glad that you all are here. Whether you are yeah, not cramming, you're, you know, finals are for another week or so. Whether you are here because you often come here, whether this is your first time here. Uh, whatever brought you here tonight, I am, I'm glad you are here um, to worship, to hear from the word, to spend time with other believers. This is, this is how God changes us and changes the world, is through gatherings like tonight. Um, I want to thank you all for having me here. This is actually my first oasis. I've never been to this before. Come on now. This is awesome. What you guys do here is fantastic. I'm really grateful for Brennan for inviting me. I've loved getting to know Brennan. He's a good, good friend to me, and he's a good leader for you all. Brennan is the bomb. Give him a hand, people. <laughs> Brennan is great. Um, a little background on me. I did not grow up in South Dakota. I'm from Duluth, Minnesota. So the, the winters are like 10 degrees colder, but there's no wind, and so it's kind of a, it, it's a wash. Um, it's equally terrible here as it is there. Um, I've, been, I've been married for eight years. My wife, Megan, uh, is a mental health counselor here in Brookings. Uh, we have two children, a three-year-old named Theodore and a 10-month, 10-month-old today, a 10-month-old named Kierden. Um, they are wonderful boys. Uh, this morning, uh, Theo, after spending some time with Kierden, he walked up to me and he said, I, I love the baby. He go, wah, 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 and then I tickle him. And that's like his whole relationship with him. They, they just have fun, and he's learning how to be a big brother, and it's a, it's a good, good time. I've been working with the Navs for eight years, for as long as I've been here. Um, I, was, uh, I became a believer through a Navigator's ministry uh, up in Duluth when I was a freshman. I came into school believing I was a Christian, finding out that I wasn't, having an older mentor invest in me, and, and learning how to follow God in college. So I love to be around you all, be around college students, um, you are the, and uh, you, you young adults as well. These are the people that I love and connect with most, so I'm really grateful to be here tonight. Um, we're in the middle of a, a series called The Greats in Scripture. Last week, I believe you looked at the, the Great Commandment. Uh, tonight, we're going to be looking at uh, something that we'll call the Great Collaboration. Um, if you have a Bible, great. If you don't, you all have phones. There's no way you don't all have phones. Open up a Bible app on your phone, and I want you to open it up uh, to John 17. Um, if you don't know how to get there, ask a neighbor. It's about four-fifths of the way through your Bible. I'm, I'm going to make you look at this Scripture because I think it's really helpful to see with your own eyes as I, as I speak what Jesus has to say there. Um, again, last week we talked about the great commandment, uh, what it means for uh, Jesus' desire for us to love God with every fiber of our being and to love other people as we love ourselves. Next week we're going to be looking at the great commission, Jesus' command for us to go and make disciples everywhere we go. And tonight we're looking at what could be called the great collaboration, which is Jesus' design for the unity of his people. And as you look at John 17 and the chapters right before that, you see that all three of these greats are obviously heavy on Jesus' heart during the last few days of his life on earth. 
Um, the chapters of John 13 through 17 are a, a night that he spends with his disciples in an upper room teaching them these final things. In John 13, uh, verses 34 through 35, Jesus talks about the great commandment. He says, a new command I give you that you love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And that's how all people in the world will know that you are my disciples. That was heavy on Jesus' mind. The Great Commission was, too, the very last thing that Jesus said as he went up into heaven was, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go, make disciples of all nations. That was the last thing he said. And what we're going to talk about tonight was heavy on his heart as well, the, gr- the great collaboration. Jesus designed for his people to be one, to be united. I'm curious if any of you here uh, would use the word unity to describe what they see when they look at Christianity today. Anyone? No, probably not. I'd, um, I'd argue that, and I think this is what Jesus is going to tell us in this passage, that our unity as believers, it isn't just a nice thing to make us uh, feel good about our Christian experience, um, but that it's mission critical for the reputation of Jesus, for our enjoyment of the love of God, and for the advance of God's gospel into the world. It's mission critical. So this message has massive implications for our Christian life. So it's in that context that we get into John 17. This chapter marks the end of a conversation that Jesus has with his disciples during his last moments before his crucifixion and his death. Um, He's been preparing them for the reality that he's going away. And this is what he prays right after that. John 17, starting in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said... Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed." I have manifested your name to the people who you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you've given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and they've come to know that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. For I am glorified in them. And I am no longer going to be in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you. And these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself. They also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. 
I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundations of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I may known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. There's so many beautiful things in this prayer that we don't have time to get into tonight. Um, There's this this nugget in verse 3 where Jesus reveals that the mystery of eternal life, which which is nothing more and nothing less than knowing him and loving him, What a beautiful truth. He shows such great concerns for these friends that he's walked alongside with for three years, asking God to guard them and sanctify them and give them joy. I hope you just see the love that Christ has for these people as he prays. So many other things. There's three main things Jesus is concerned with in this prayer. The first thing is that Jesus is concerned with his glorification, making God known through what's about to happen through his death and resurrection that he will himself prove to be God's son. He's also concerned about the disciples' safety and security. Um, just sitting there in that room who are, no, who are no longer of this world but now belong to Christ. Um, and then third, what we're going to talk about tonight, um, the unity of future believers who will believe through the disciples' testimony. Um, that's in verse 20. And that includes all of us. Any believer today is a spiritual descendant of those 11 men that were hanging out in Jesus' upper room with him that night. So he prays for us. Um, So the request I want to zero in on is when Jesus asks in verse 21, where he says, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. The request that Jesus makes for the future disciples, the churches of the centuries to come, we find in that verse. He wants us to be made one. God is uniquely interested in uniting all things under Christ. If you are a believer, that's the story of your life, that God has united himself to you through Christ. In fact, it's actually the story of the whole Bible. Um, In Ephesians 1, verses 9 and 10, Paul makes the claim that Christ has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. This is his plan for the fullness of time. All of creation is leading to this moment to unite all things in him. Things in heaven and things on earth. This is the story of the entire Bible. God creates mankind for his own possession, but people decide they don't want to live underneath God's rule, so they separate themselves from God, who is their life source, and so essentially condemn themselves to death. But ever since then, ever since that moment in Genesis 3, right at the beginning of the Bible, God has been working to reconcile the world back to himself. In the Old Testament, he called a man named Abraham to himself and created the nation of Israel that would belong to him, united to him. And that nation was called then to be a blessing to all other nations of the world, bringing them back to the Lord through their witness. Of course, Israel wasn't faithful to that calling. Indwelling sin continues to separate them from God, and the whole world is left waiting for a Messiah to save them from the spiritual slavery that they find themselves in. And so the Father sends his Son, Jesus, who, is, who in his living and in his suffering, he ransoms back a people for God's own possession 
And as he rises from the dead, he leads people who were captives of sin and death into the freedom of the kingdom of God. Anyone who would repent of their sins and trust and submit themselves to the loving rule of Jesus. And by the way, if that, if that what I just said, doesn't describe you, it's available to you tonight, right now. Any person can be united to God through repentance and trust in Christ. Choose tonight to turn away from your sin Turn away from living on your own terms and decide to follow Jesus, trusting him as the only way to be made right with God. That's available to all of us. Because at the end of time, God will ultimately give to Jesus and to all those who follow him a restored creation. In its original perfected state, cleansed by Jesus, all pain and hurt taken away to be enjoyed for all of eternity. That's the story of the Bible. That's the whole thing, the mystery of God's will, God's plan for the world now revealed in Jesus. Though the world was lost in sin, Jesus unites a people from all corners of the earth to be saved and to belong to him forever. That's the story of history. And God is doing this work. Um, Remember, as we read John 17, remember that that's a prayer. Jesus isn't just hoping that the disciples will will find a way to live well together, or that he's not even telling them to do it, to do something, to work on it, to figure it out. He prays for them in the confidence that God's plan for the fullness of time is that he certainly will unite everything under himself. So Jesus entrusts the church to the protection and guidance of God. He knew, as we must believe as well, that God is the one who will provide for his people. So in this prayer in John 17, Jesus is praying that the future disciples, again, that's, that's all of us in here who believe in Jesus, though they might come from all different backgrounds and made unique and distinct by the Father, will look and act and think as if they were one person, which is a wild thought. The Apostle Paul takes that idea up when he writes a couple of his letters. In Philippians 2, verse 2, Paul says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being of full accord and of one mind. Look at all the emphasis on sameness and agreement in that verse. He says a different way in Ephesians 2. He says that God abolished the law of Jewish commandments that he might create one new man in place of the two and reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross. Again, it's as if one person, one body that now exists instead of a bunch of self-interested individuals That's what Jesus does. Um, And notice that this isn't just um, this kind of unity that Jesus is speaking about and praying about. It's not just agreement on like some doctrine and just an understanding that we all just got to get along. Um, Look back in John 17 in verse 23. He says, I and them and you and me that they may become perfectly one. The phrase perfectly one doesn't mean, doesn't leave a lot of room for error. Um, So how on earth does a room full of people like yourselves, like any church that gathers in the world, um, all with diverse backgrounds and interests and convictions, how do they find perfect unity? Because these scriptures teach us that there is a completeness and fullness to the unity of believers that they ought to have with each other, whether it's, and, and where it's not simply that we just go to church together, so we should be friendly, um, or we go to Oasis together, so we should be friendly. Nor is it that we need to just find some hobbies or some other common interests so that we have more to talk about or agree on when we hang out. That's not what this unity has to be. 
So where does the core of our unity come from? The big idea here is that the core of our Christian unity is our shared intimacy with Jesus. The core of our Christian unity is our shared intimacy with Jesus. Whenever Jesus talks about unity in this passage, it's always attached to relationship with Christ. Look again in verse 21. He says, That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. Being in Christ is attached to the believers all being one. Look again in verses 22 and 23. They may be one even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfectly one. The thing that unifies Christians, it isn't culture or lifestyle or hobbies or even denominations or doctrines or, or, or musical preferences or anything else. What binds Christians together is their mutual love for Jesus. That's the core. Another way to say it is that Jesus is the one uniting people to himself, So the only unifying characteristic of Christians is that Jesus has gathered them together by his grace. One of the beautiful things about Christianity is that a a Christian could, could, could get in a plane, fly around the world, let's say like fly into Turkey, and happen to meet a, a Turkish believer. And in that moment, knowing nothing about them, despite all the differences of background and culture, you have a bond with each other as a brother or sister in Christ that transcends every possible division between you two that there could possibly be. Your mutual experience with Jesus, your faith in him, your joy in him, your desire to please him with every fiber of your being brings the two of you together and brings the group of us together in a way that no other shared interest could ever dream of accomplishing. And that must be true of us here, even in this room, for those of us who profess Christ. One of the biggest problems in in churches and Christian groups um, is that we have tendencies to create in-groups or cliques within these gatherings. And the most basic reason is that much of our fellowship isn't ultimately based on Christ, but on things like mutual interests, types of degree you're working for, whatever job you have, sports, music, personality types, even things like gender or race or nationality, those things play into the people that we choose to have relationship with. And when someone doesn't meet th- that, those criteria, we often, maybe even unintentionally, keep them at arm's length and don't let them into real community or fellowship with us. We cannot do that. Friends, we have to seek the togetherness the unity that's only found in our shared relationship with Christ. That is the core. If there's anything else that defines our community here, it isn't Christianity. Christianity is about our shared intimacy with Christ. And this unity has massive implications for our world. Um, What's at stake in our pursuit of unity? One thing is the reputation of Jesus. The reputation of Jesus is at stake in our unity. Look at again at verses 21 through 23. That they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Our unity with each other validates the divinity of Jesus. Think about that. If Jesus leaves, if Jesus dies and goes to heaven and the disciples just scatter and create factions, then he turns out to be no more than just a good human leader who had good influence for a while. 
brought people together for a season, and then they scatter. But if he's God, and he is God, then the people he brings together will stay together because no outside force can disrupt the spiritual reality of their relationship with Christ. So to the degree that we experience unity in Christ together, to that same degree, Christ is glorified and proven to be the I am, the one true God. The reputation of Jesus is at stake. Also, our experience and enjoyment of divine love is at stake. This is a big deal in your life. In verse 24, Jesus references the love God has from the Trinity. He says, he talks about the glory that you have given me, the Father has given me, because you loved me before the foundations of the world. Before time even existed, before anything else existed, the three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, existed in perfect, loving unity. Loving each other, enjoying each other, serving each other, satisfied in each other. God didn't need us. He wasn't just bored one day and decided to just create people just to have something fun to do one day. No, he created from the overflow of the abundance of the love that he has in himself so that other created beings might experience that kind of perfect love. And in some almost unexplainable way, as we spend time with other Christians, as we fellowship together, loving each other, serving each other, listening to each other, worshiping God together, eating together, reaching the lost together, all of these things we do together, as we do that, we experience a taste of the overflow from God's perfect love that he has in himself. We get tastes of that, even in this gathering here tonight. A person will not find this kind of love outside the church. When I say the church, I mean the gatherings of believers that happen all over the world. There are good things by God's grace outside the church as well, but only in the unity of believers is there hope of being truly seen and truly loved by people in a way that Christ does for us. None of us do it perfectly, but there's hope for it here. And though none of the, the Christian can actually begin to relate to others that way because they have experienced the power of God, the power of Christ relating to them in that same way. So as we spend time with each other, there's opportunity for a real experience of the unique and the holy love that could only originate with God himself. So our experience of divine love is at stake. That's, that's satisfaction. That's joy in life that's at stake. Um, thirdly, the advance of the gospel. Verse 23, again, I and them and you and me, they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you have sent me. That the world may know that God sent Jesus. Unity shows the world that Jesus is from God. We want to see the world reached for Christ. We want to see believers from all nations and all peoples come to know Christ and hear the gospel and turn back to him. But what's always been true about the advance of the gospel is that the character of the messenger matters just as much to the hearers as the message itself. The character of the message matters just as much as the message itself. If a message of reconciliation to God comes from a group of people who aren't even reconciled to each other, would you consider that a trustworthy message? Our unity as Christians gives the non-believing world a compelling reason to consider the divinity of Jesus 
and the message of salvation as being real and therefore maybe worth giving their lives to. The advance of the gospel is at stake. There's a lot at stake. And unfortunately, most of, much of what we see in the church today is not unity. We see in-groups, cliques, factions, dissension, distrust, bitterness, separation of believers that ought to be bound together in Christ. This doesn't mean that God's promises have fallen short, um, because God always fulfills what he promises, but it does mean that the church has a lot of room to grow, to grow up into maturity, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Paul says it that way in Ephesians. And there's no reason that this generation, your generation, can't take the lead in putting aside distractions and seeking Christ-centered unity with other believers. You don't need to wait for the older people in your church to initiate in this area. But as Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.13, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. You be the example. Um, So knowing that Christ is praying for this and entrusts it to the Father, God also gives us a role in participating in the great collaboration. How can we begin to fulfill Jesus' prayer requests for unity? Jesus has a funny way of doing that. He prays for things, and then his followers end up being the, the answer to his prayers. That happens in Matthew 9 when he says, man, the, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And then a few verses later, he sends out a bunch of his disciples to go into the harvest field. And here, too, Jesus prays for unity, and he gives us a role in working towards it. So what is, how do we participate? How do we fill this prayer request? The first thing is, we go back to last week, Pursue the greatest commandment. It's loving God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is abiding in Christ. If we are ultimately united by our intimacy with Jesus, the way for us all to increase unity with each other is to be more intimate with Jesus. Commit to spending your whole life growing closer and closer in relationship with Christ through meditation on Scripture and speaking with Him through prayer. The closer we are to Christ, the closer we are then to each other. Pursue the greatest commandment. Secondly, take on the humble mind of Christ. In Philippians 2, I mentioned a verse where Paul says that we ought to be of the same mind, of full accord, all agreeing with each other. And he says that. um, And then right after that, he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Those verses answer how we get to the unity described in verse 2. Have the mind of Christ, which is humility. It's thinking, not, not thinking less of yourself, but thinking about yourself less. It's thinking about the needs of others around you. Putting your own preferences, the things that would usually create in-groups or factions or dissensions, it's putting those things aside and saying, I am choosing to serve other people at my own expense. I'm going to listen to other people when I would rather just talk. I'm a talker. Some of you are probably that way too. What would it look like to listen, to humble yourself in that way? To confess sins to each other instead of hanging on to pride, just putting it out there and confessing and forgiving each other freely instead of holding on to bitterness. 
Take on the humble mind of Christ. This builds unity with, it, with each other. Thirdly, this is important. Put away trivial matters. In Titus 3, 9, Paul says to Titus, Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law, for these are unprofitable and worthless. This verse comes after Paul defends the centrality of Jesus and the gospel message in the life of, their, of the believer. And then he says that. There are so many things that would needlessly distract us from the main things. And some of them are valuable to a degree. Some of the things we argue about and have conversation about. But we have a sinful tendency in us to make the smallest things the main things. We put away the most important things off to the side and we bring up Less important thing is to take precedence in relationships, and that pushes other believers aside. It's different things for every generation. Um, for everyone, there's generational norms. There's matters of opinions and culture. There's third and fourth tier doctrinal disputes. For some, it's hyper-focus on conspiracy or politics. All of us have our pet causes which can needlessly spark controversy, and which Paul say in this verse are both unprofitable and worthless. Nothing good can come from it when we make those matters of the highest precedence above our unity with Christ. So set aside your, your pet causes. Pursue the real commonality in Christ that you have with each other here. Put away trivial matters. And then fourthly, as a, as a prelude to next week, um, give yourself to the Great Commission. The lost are foremost on God's heart. Um, Jesus, when he was on earth, said that I came, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And if that's at the top of God's priority list, it ought to be a primary bond for believers. The church is never more unified than when we join in God's grand mission of reconciling sinners back to God. When we are partnering for the sake of reaching lost souls, telling people the good news of Jesus, moving intentionally into the lives of unsaved people around us, committing to praying for them regularly, serving them and loving them. So encourage the believers around you in their efforts to reach the lost. Let's pray together. Um, Father, we know that our togetherness is central to the mission of the gospel here on earth. You are uniting all things under Christ. It's your plan for the fullness of time. You started it back in Genesis 3. You are going to end it one day, and here we are in the middle of that journey. Father, would you give us the humble mind of Christ even today? to seek the good of other people around us, to put aside our, our pet causes and the things that might distract and divide us? Would you unite even the believers here in this room and the believers here on campus and in the city of Brookings and the towns around in the unity of Christ? Would you cause us to be more and more intimate with him? Would you build us up, the church, into greater maturity and unity so that the world may know that you, Jesus, are from the Father, that you are God, and that you are doing a work here on earth. You are working to save people from all tribes and peoples and nations, and you've invited us into it. Father, we want the experience of the love that you have had in yourself since before the foundation of the world. 
We want it. We want to be a part of your mission. We pray that you would stir in our hearts to respond to you in whatever way that you have set on us, to pursue unity with people in this room, with people in this town that we need to reconcile with and come together with. Father, do that work, we ask in your son's name. Amen.